Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Our reading this evening, I'll begin the reading in Romans 8, 14, and continue through verse 30. We'll be focusing uh, in a, a narrower scope on verses 19 through 27 as a whole, but then especially on verse 23, where Paul mentions our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Romans 8, beginning the reading in verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. As we come to Romans 8, we find a chapter that is filled with all kinds of wonderful, comforting statements of triumph and victory in Christ. That there is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we have the testimony of God's own spirit with our spirit that we are sons of God and by the spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. 
As we reach the end of the chapter, we again find Paul expressing the, the wonderful victory that, that is ours, that there's nothing in the whole created order that is possibly able to separate us from God's love, that whatever challenges we might face, whether sword or famine or nakedness, tribulation or distress, persecution, that none of these things will separate us from God's love. In fact, we are more than conquerors in these things. So it's a chapter of tremendous encouragement, a chapter in which Paul is making statements in the major key. And so we might expect this to be a chapter which is nothing but triumph and celebration and doxology from start to finish. And yet in this chapter in which there is so much expression of joy, in which there's so much confidence expressed in the victory of Christ, we nevertheless find right in the middle of it a cacophony of groans. In this chapter in which Paul is expressing all of these wonderful Christian truths that are our comfort, truths which ought to lead us to praise and worship and thanksgiving, there is simultaneously the presence of boisterous moaning. Labor pains of a woman writhing until she gives birth. Deep inward yearning and distress for something that we do not yet see. What is this groaning all about right here in the middle of Romans 8? This evening we will see that we groan until the redemption of our bodies. We groan until our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So first consider that as we groan, we can make this a, a very inclusive we, that it's the creation itself that groans. Read again in verses 19 and following, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So here we have the creation presented as groaning, as in deep distress. And what is the, the, the thing that will alleviate this distress? What is the thing that will silence this groaning of the creation? It's the revelation of the sons of God. Verse 19, that it groans eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. That the created order is earnestly waiting and expecting for, as one writer puts it, it's craning its neck, standing on tiptoes, looking 
for the appearance of the sons of God. The sons of God are already uh, existing. We have the Spirit himself dwelling within us who testifies that we are sons of God. But this has not yet been revealed publicly in an open way. You can think back to the very opening verses of Romans when God declared Jesus Christ to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. That in the resurrection there is a declaration of sonship. And until that declaration uh, with respect to us takes place, until the sons of God are revealed, until God acknowledges that we are his children publicly by resurrection, until that day, creation groans. It seems that Paul is using an image here, a way of understanding the creation that we can see in the Old Testament. At times we see the the creation, and, and especially the earth, spoken of as though it were a woman, and especially in connection with a woman's womb. Perhaps most famously, we can think of Job's words, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. That was Job anticipating a return to his mother's womb. Well, he's anticipating a burial into the earth. And yet he makes an analogy there with, uh, with his mother's womb. You can think also of Psalm 139, in which David talks about uh, his being formed in his mother's womb, and yet he also speaks of God forming him in the depths of the earth. That there's this understanding that, in a way, the, the creation is like a, 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 a woman or a woman uh, in her womb. And the earnest expectation of the creation is that one day it will give birth. That into the earth there have been buried the people of God. And until the earth, as a woman would expel a child during childbirth, until the earth expels the sons of God in resurrection glory, it groans. That the creation order has a vested interest in seeing you rise from the dead bodily, because it too has been subjected to bondage to decay. You can think of the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 3, when God says, Cursed is the ground on account of you, speaking to Adam. That the, the earth has a curse placed on it because of Adam's sin. Adam casts a long shadow over human history. And in the book of Romans, we still see his shadow, the shadow of the futility of creation, extending into chapter 8. And so the earth has a vested interest in our resurrection because that will mean its own liberty and its own entry into glory. Because our bodies are taken from the earth, there is a solidarity that exists, a a solidarity that allowed for God to uh, curse the earth when Adam sinned, but also a solidarity which will enable the earth to reach a greater 
exaltation than it presently experiences. We look at the world and we think it's so, it's so beautiful as we look at the, the natural created order. And yet even then we're able to say that it is in bondage to decay and corruption. And that God has intended for even the, the creation itself a higher glory. And that destiny is bound up with your resurrection from the dead. Not only the creation, we ourselves groan. Verses 23 and following. Not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. We also are groaning as we wait for our adoption. Again, we are already adopted. We already have the spirit of adoption within us testifying to that status. And yet Paul here portrays the resurrection, the redemption of our bodies as the, the consummation of our adoption. The public pronouncement that we are God's sons through Jesus Christ. And until we are conformed to the image of Christ's glory, we also groan. At present, we are being conformed to the image of Christ in his humiliation. And during this season, there is a distress that we experience. So notice that this is a groaning that is not easily silenced. It's not easily silenced by any man. It's, it can be silenced by God, easily by his infinite power. But with respect to one another, we recognize that as we interact with one another in the church, we are interacting with people who groan, and who groan in such a way that that groaning is not easily silenced. When we interact with other people, we may wish for them to get to the point as quickly as possible where they stop this, this lament of waiting and, and wanting and this, this deep yearning and we want to bring them to a point of, of giving thanks and praise and, and moving back into the major key. And certainly there, that is a good thing to give thanks and praise. But notice that alongside all of the praise and the doxology that exists in the book of Romans simultaneously exists a lament. Simultaneously exists alongside of those things, there is a groaning. Now, this is a groaning in hope. It is not the groaning of the world, whose groans are but the prelude to an even deeper and more grievous wailing. It is a groaning in hope. Hope characterizes this groaning but it does not silence it. That until Jesus Christ raises us from the dead and conforms us to his resurrection image, there is, in our present experience, uh, we 
experience in our bodies something that makes us unsettled. We're unsettled because we're mortal. We're unsettled because we are returning to the dust. We're unsettled because our bodies are under decay. Our outer man is wasting away. And young people may not understand that well, or people who are healthy may not understand that very well. But as the years roll by, we, we begin to understand that the body is past its, its peak and prime age of, of young adolescence, or perhaps shortly after that, and that there are faculties that we're never going to get back in this life that there is uh, a recovery of, of, of doing certain things that's never going to be gained again, that we are on the backside of the downhill slope, and that at the bottom of that hill there is a grave. And we think that this is inconsistent with who we really are. And in a certain respect it is. We know that we're sons of God, and yet we're experiencing in our bodies something that does not seem to agree with that. To be a son of God is to enjoy resurrection life, is to enjoy life in the spirit. And yet, in another respect, this is what it is to be a son of God, because it's to be patterned after the image of Christ. It's to be patterned after his suffering. Him who is preeminently the son of God. And so by the Spirit, our mortality is transformed into an aspect of our sonship. Yet nevertheless, during this season, such mortality causes us to groan. And furthermore, we also groan because in our bodies we are engaged in a constant conflict with sin. That sin is seeking dominion in our lives, it is seeking to reign in our mortal bodies. And this conflict is exhausting. This conflict is one in which the Christian desires to eventually overcome. And the prospect of overcoming it, the prospect of sin being abolished from our natures, is one that appears so precious and desirous to the Christian that he cannot wait for the day when it comes to pass. And until that day, he is distressed within himself, asking how long, groaning inward, waiting for that day, the redemption of his body, of her body. And so creation groans and we groan, waiting for our resurrection. But thirdly, in some profound, mysterious way, even the Spirit of God groans. Verses 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Some have interpreted this text, this 
these unuttered words, these unuttered groanings of the Spirit, as the Spirit makes intercession for us in this way, that the Spirit stirs up within us prayer, and at times stirs up within us such prayer that is so vehement that we pray more with sobs and sighs than we do with actual words. And that is the Spirit's intercession in our inarticulate groans. And certainly all the graces in us are wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who enables us to pray. It's the Spirit who enables us to pray at times even with sobs and sighs rather than with words. But I'm not certain that that exhausts the meaning of what Paul is saying here. Rather, it, it seems to me, as I understand the text, that Paul is saying that in addition to our weak prayers, alongside our prayers comes a better prayer that is offered by a better prayer, by the Spirit of God himself. And the Spirit prays in such a way that is in accord and intercedes in such a way that is in accord with God's will. That we don't know what to pray for at times. And Paul says we. He includes him, himself in this. And we can think of Paul in his weakness praying something that was not according to God's will. He prayed for the removal of the thorn in his flesh. And he prayed persistently. He prayed three times and, and he got an answer. And, and simply think about Paul's persistence in prayer. You, you pray for something and God gives you an explicit verbal answer. And you go back and you ask again. And he gives the same answer. And Paul goes back and he asks again. At times we don't know what to pray for. We don't know what to pray what is best for us. And so the Spirit also intercedes for us. He prays the prayer that ought to have been prayed. He prays a better prayer, a prayer according to the will of God. A prayer that purifies and cleans up all of the imperfections of our prayers. But notice that the Spirit's intercession does not clean up and put away your groanings. The Spirit in making intercession also, in some mysterious way, groans. The Spirit groans in making intercession for us, asking for that which is needful. And what is, what is the end of the Spirit's intercession? What is the Spirit seeking in making such groaning intercessions for us? It is to conform us after the pattern and image of Christ. It is the Spirit's desire, it is God's desire, and it's the Spirit's desire to fashion you after the image of Christ. It is God's desire that Jesus should be the firstborn among many brothers. And the Spirit intercedes to that end. The Spirit intercedes and prays the prayer that is going to make you look like Jesus. 
he intercedes in such a way that that is going to be the outcome, that you will be shaped and fashioned after the image of Christ. You may pray a prayer. You may pray a prayer in which you ask for a respite, a relief from suffering. And you say, this isn't, this isn't what I desire. I don't think this is what I need in my life. And yet it is God's purpose to use this suffering as part of your participation in Christ, as part of your being made like Christ in his suffering and humiliation, so that you may also participate with him in glory when the Spirit intercedes to that end. You can think of parents who take a child to the hospital, a child who has been injured and who is perhaps too young to speak, or if he can speak, he's in so much pain that he can't tell the doctors what's wrong. He can't tell the doctors what he needs. But the parents who know the child, who know what has happened, who know what the child needs, are able to speak to the doctors, to intercede for their child and say, and advocate for their child and say, this is what is most needed. And the doctor may pull out a scalpel or a syringe and the child may wail even louder at the sight of these things. And yet the parents seeking the good of the child will do what is best for the child's ultimate healing and health. So the Spirit intercedes for us. It is the constant aim of the Spirit to intercede in such a way that we become like Christ. So he helps us in our weakness. And so for the present time, all creation groans, we ourselves groan, even the Spirit of God groans. One day this groaning will give way to singing. One day this cacophony of groans will give way to all creation shouting and worshiping the creator in which we ourselves will worship Christ and we will see him face to face in which we, having seen him, will be made like him because we will have seen him as he is. We will have bodies that have been fashioned after his body and the spirit will enable us to worship Christ with, with a pure heart, with a pure soul, with a pure body. But until then, in the Christian life, while we wait for this, we wait for it with hope. We don't wait for it with a despairing groaning. We don't wait for it in a, a way that is accusing God of any kind of injustice in our lives. But we hope for it in an eager, earnest expectation waiting for the day and groaning until we see that day when our bodies have been redeemed. So congregation, as we seek to live a life before God, consider that as you interact with one another, you're interacting with people who carry deep hurts in their lives. They may not always show it on their faces, but within themselves, there is an agony. There is a distress 
in the body. And it's not something that we need to ignore or pretend like it's not there. In fact, it's something that we can come alongside of and in which we can grieve and mourn and lament as well, in which we can share in their groaning. But we must find a place within the church where people are able to express this kind of hopeful, earnest expectation of salvation, and yet one which is marked by discomfort and distress in the meantime. We ought to seek to encourage one another, to bring one another through lament to the point of praise and thanksgiving. But we should also seek to do so in such a way that allows that lament and that groaning to coexist simultaneously alongside that praise and thanksgiving. Because that is the nature of our Christian life at present. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do groan inwardly, waiting for that day when our bodies will be redeemed. We ask that you would hasten that day. We ask that you would give us a clear vision of hope, that in our groaning we would not sink into despair, but rather that we would wait with patience, with humility, with meekness, and that one day you would indeed transform all of our sighs, as heavy as our groans and sighs have been, would you in the same measure transform those groanings and sighs into shouts of exultation and praise for all eternity as we worship you and your Son and the Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.